Thank you very much. And yeah, it's a, it's a privilege to be here and great to be here with you. Um, so I think I'll start by way of a little story. Um, Ten years ago, uh, I discovered about fracking. Um, does, is everybody familiar with what that means? Yeah, okay. So this is the incredibly sort of polluting way of getting oil and gas out of the deep underground. Um, and at that time in the UK, nobody knew anything about what fracking was. Uh, I couldn't believe that it was already being already taking place in the US and that there were plans to bring this really polluting technique to the UK. And I was talking about it with my friends and family, and my little daughter, who at that time was five, burst into tears. And she said, Mommy, surely they realise if they're poisoning the ground, they're poisoning themselves. They're going to die. You have to call them and tell them to stop. And I just remember thinking, this is so insane. You know, a five-year-old can understand you know, what insanity this is. Um, and, and really, everybody ought to be able to understand that as well. And I suppose at that point I was what you might call a sort of armchair activist. <laughs> In other words, you know, signing petitions, sending the odd letter to my local elected representative and that kind of thing. Um, and, and that had probably been the case for some years. But my daughter's tears that day kind of got me up out of my armchair and I started researching, I started giving talks, I started publishing leaflets and hundreds of thousands of them went out around the UK to different, you know, anti-fracking communities and so on. So it was, it was like a whole kind of diving in, I suppose, to very on-the-ground environmental activism. And that was how I met um, the co-founder of Stop Ecosystem International, Polly Higgins, um, very much a legal pioneer, a barrister, who, who gave up her, really on, on the verge of being in very lucrative um, career as an employment barrister, um, and in, in search of an answer to a question that had come to her, which was how do we create a legal duty of care for the earth? And, I mean, she started with some concepts like rights of nature, um, but she came to this sense that the most important uh, difference could be made by simply criminalizing the worst harms to nature, and she called those harms ecocide. Now, the, the word ecocide had been around for a while, but it was Polly who really resurrected it and, and brought it back into public consciousness. And when we met, it was very much a sort of kindred spirit moment, um, and we, we worked together until her untimely death in 2019. Um, but she had this, as I say, it was such a simple approach, you know, just make it a crime. Um, and that felt to me so intuitively obvious um, but at that time, this was, you know, this was before the IPCC reports, the, it was before um, the, the grassroots mobilizations, Extinction Rebellion, Greta Thunberg and the, and the school strikes. And to be honest, it was before there was a real awareness of how serious the situation you know, is on a planetary scale. So you know, a few years ago, that was still considered pretty left field. Um, and that has all kind of changed. I mean, now we have a situation where making it a crime to severely destroy the environment actually just feels like common sense. Um, and at that time, it, that wasn't the case. Um, and one of the upshots of it not being the case at the time was it was hard to get support and funding for this initiative. And we ended up kind of pooling our resources, you know, the lawyer and the activist, if you like, um, and starting this public campaign. Um, and so in a way, converting Polly's personal following into a membership. Um, and actually being able to raise funds to work on the diplomatic side of this work. Because, of course, ultimately, if you want to 
create a new international crime, that means getting governments on board. Um, and at that time, we were already speaking to the Pacific Island state of Vanuatu, which has been a real champion of many legal avenues internationally, including ecocide law. Um, <clears throat> and so, I mean, we no longer have Polly with us, of course, which is tragic. But what we do now have is an extraordinarily fast-growing movement um, and you know, alliances and collaborations with lawyers, politicians, faith leaders, indigenous leaders, uh, NGOs, uh, grassroots groups, I mean, you name it. It's a very, very cross-sector movement now and all focusing on this one specific thing, making ecocide an international crime. Um, and the important, the, perhaps the primary important thing here is that we're talking about a crime. So we're talking about criminal law. Um, and of course, when you, when you say the word crime, most people run off down a dark alley in their minds with a knife because that's what the word crime tends to kind of evoke in people's minds. Um, but the important thing about criminal law is not so much the, you know, punishing the perpetrators, which of course, that's how it functions. What it's actually for, of course, is keeping us safe. So, you know, yes, you know, murder is, murder is, is a crime in order to punish murderers, but that's just one aspect. What it's actually there for is to stop people killing each other. So effectively, the, the, the sort of drive to criminalize the worst harm to nature is a way of saying, what, what can we do that's really muscular and concrete that can actually protect by creating a level of deterrence and prevention, which is what criminal law does. And it touches in with that kind of moral line that in the West, and which is obviously the globally dominant paradigm, we use criminal law to draw those moral lines. And that's really, that's absolutely fundamental, if you like. Um, and also, it, it brings in a different element. So a board of directors, for example, is going to take its environmental obligations um, far more seriously, knowing that if it fails to comply with them and it threatens ecocide as a result, that they, they, you know, you know, those directors could be looking at a tap on the shoulder. Um, and that is hugely powerful because... Um, it's always a kind of double level of deterrence because not only is your personal freedom and your personal reputation on the line in that context, if you're in the corporate world, an ecocide on the whole is a corporate crime. I mean, obviously there are lots of also state-sponsored companies and so on, but generally speaking, it's a corporate crime. Um, and it's not just that, so it's not just their reputation, it's the reputation of their company. Um, and often it's also their stock value. So, um, and just to give an example, you know, when the, the fraud at the heart of Enron was discovered, the stock value plummeted. So there's a kind of level of deterrence with the potential of an ecocide crime that there is perhaps not in the same way for the other really serious crimes like war crimes or genocide where, you know, potentially the PR aspect is not forefront. Um, so yeah, so, so it has a kind of a kind of power to it, and and complements also um, you know, other other areas of law like the sort of rights sphere. For example, the newly acknowledged um, human right to a clean and safe environment, um, as well as of course the growing uh, movement towards the rights of nature, so recognizing natural landscapes or features, or indeed ultimately nature as a whole um, as the subject of rights. Um, and that's easy to understand when you kind of figure that our basic right to life is protected by the fact that taking away that life is a crime, murder. Um, and the, so obviously that kind of equivalence goes for the criminal law of ecocide in the sense that it can protect the rights of nature or the right to a clean and safe environment. So um, I suppose before we kind of go into more of a discussion, it's probably just worth having a little bit of a sense of where this is at. 
um, in terms of the development of this initiative and, and, and the law around the world. Um, you know, we are essentially an advocacy organisation. We're not a law firm. Um, we have you know, various legal associates. But um, what we are seeing is not only a strong direction of travel towards an international law, but we're also seeing this um, initiative being taken up in national parliaments in many parts of the world as well. So just in the last four months, there have been six countries where ecocide law proposals have either been announced or progressed in, um, in, in those parliaments. Um, and at the same time, we have a, a level of discussion at the EU, which is almost coming to its conclusion now, resulting from a text that was put forward by the European Parliament in March of this year, um, effectively saying that the Parliament wanted ecocide level crimes included into the EU Crime, uh, environmental Crimes Directive, which is currently under revision. So those discussions are happening right now, and we expect a text to emerge um, by this time next month, hopefully. It was supposed to emerge last month, but they couldn't come to agreement. And we, we're fairly sure that the text that emerges won't be the exact one that we would like, but it will certainly be a step in the right direction. And the final um, uh, thing that I'll, I'll say in this, just in this introduction is that there have been some very key probably, I would say, three key milestones in the development of this um, movement, because it is now a movement. And, you know, we now have, we have an international team that's largely UK-based, but not exclusively, um, but we now have um, associate groups and teams in 50 countries. So, you know, that's, and, and that was from basically the two of us <laughs> in 2017. So it's, it's, it's been an extraordinary uh, journey. So the first milestone was the tragically, um, the passing of Polly herself, um, in the sense that there's a way that, that, that people have in a sense of, if, if there's a strong figurehead for an initiative, what often happens is people sit back and say, well, I don't need to do that, because that person's doing it. Um, whereas when she died, suddenly I had lots of people getting in touch with me saying, we can't let this work die with her, what can we do to help? And obviously, one of my responses was, you could have said it earlier. But, you know, <laughs> effectively, um, what began at that stage was a huge kind of dot-joining exercise. And what's really kind of come home to me, really, just in the last few months, is how actually unintentionally, of course, you know, she certainly did not intend to die um, of, of a very aggressive cancer, which is what happened. Um, but what actually happened was a kind of a sacrifice, a martyrdom, um, in the sense that, you know... And I think she was aware of that. So those placards you can see down there um, became visible for the first time on the streets in London during the first rebellion, the Extinction Rebellion, in April 2019, which was also when Polly was dying. And it was the first time she had seen the message, or in a sense what she had been saying for a decade, actually hitting the streets. And I remember her kind of turning to me and saying, you know, Jojo, it's all going to happen now. You know, shame I have to snuff it, but it's all going to happen. And, you know, she was incredibly kind of pragmatic about what was happening. It was very humbling. And, um, and she was right. Um, so that was one, one really, yeah, it was a really major thing. She really was a martyr to the cause. The second thing was, coming back to Vanuatu, I was just looking, looking for where Vanuatu is in case, you know, most people don't even know where Vanuatu is. It's, it's in the South Pacific and it's, it's, it's kind of over here above New Zealand. It's a little group of islands. Um, but Vanuatu has a population of about half a million, I think. Um, but they punch above their weight at the diplomatic level like you wouldn't believe. Um, they're incredibly vocal. 
Um, and it was the first country to actively call for consideration of ecocide as a fifth international crime, alongside war crimes, genocide, crimes against humanity, and the crime of aggression. And they did that at the assembly, the annual assembly of the International Criminal Court back in 2019. So they put the conversation onto the diplomatic table where it hadn't been for 50 years. And the, the word ecocide is actually dates from the uh, 1970 and was first used in 1972 in the diplomatic stage. And then it kind of went backstage until Polly um, brought, it, brought it back to prominence. So, so that was, um, that was uh, December 2019. And the third really key milestone was the emergence of an international definition. Now, those postcards that you've got on your seats will, will have the, the core of the definition uh, on them. And until that time, there had been lawyers, including Polly, who had come up with definitions of what ecocide should look like as an international crime or as a crime. Um, but, of course, there's a limited weight that that can have when it's just one lawyer or a couple of lawyers getting together um, and, and deciding what, what something should look like. Um, what happened in 2020 was that we were approached, oh, by that time we had a charitable foundation as well, and we were approached by um, politicians, from uh, parliamentarians from Sweden, who said, you know, would you be able to convene um, a panel to, to actually draft a consensus definition that has a level of credibility we could take to our government and say, could you propose this at the ICC? And on the basis of that request, we were able to bring together um, an international panel of 12 lawyers from around the world with varying backgrounds, humanitarian law, um, environmental law, climate law, and criminal law, um, but also a, a variety of ideologies. So some quite conventional. We had someone from the International Law Commission. We had someone, a former judge from the ICC, but we also had activist lawyers as well. So what that um, that, that definition that emerged in the June of 2021 had this level of consensus and credibility that was really strong because each of those lawyers had to concede something and they were also supplied with a kind of consultation of hundreds of um, uh, opinions that, you know, that, that, that we invited in at the beginning of that process. And to put it in a very personal way, until that date, which I will never forget, 22nd of June 2021, when that, when that emerged... I had always been able to read every email in my inbox. <laughs> After that date, forget it. You know, it really, it really triggered a lot of conversations around the world. And, you know, I'm hoping that perhaps as part of the conversation we can get a little bit into why that might be. Um, but that has really... Um, it's, it's kind of, you know, created this sort of gradual but, but more and more snowballing effect of, of, of creating a, a legislative direction of travel. Um, which is now really established. So that's literally a kind of whistle-stop tour <laughs> of the, you know, the history and progress of, of uh, this initiative. So, yeah, let's, let's dive in wherever you like. <laughs> Amazing. Well, firstly, thank you so much, Jojo, for that talk. That was, I learned so much already. Um, and I think just going off that, I mean, you talk about ecocide as such an intuitive thing. I think that makes a lot of sense. It is this almost common-sense approach, you know what I mean? And I think... Considering that, where do you think, I suppose, political resistance might come from? Or where do you think perhaps challenges that ecocide has faced have come from, despite it being this almost common sense solution to this massive crisis? Yeah, this is an interesting one. And I often get this from journalists. Where are the obstacles? You know, who's resisting? Um, and I think <laughs> the simple answer to that is nobody in public 
<laughs> because, um, and I don't doubt that there is resistance. I don't doubt that there are, you know, particularly the big transnational polluters are probably, you know, keeping an eye on this and um, not really wanting it to come to fruition. However, they're not talking about it publicly. And that's, there's a very obvious reason for that. And particularly the biggest polluters have spent the last 20, maybe even 30 years greenwashing. So they're hardly going to come out now and say, oh, no, we don't think this should be a law. It's going to wreck all of that investment. So they're not doing that. I don't doubt that there is resistance, but it's mostly behind closed doors, and we, we don't hear about it. I would say one of the biggest obstacles, actually, is just information, in the sense that, interestingly, we are kind of further ahead at the diplomatic and sort of legal level than we are in terms of public awareness. Um, it, it's growing, it's definitely growing, and we know that there's appetite for it. I mean, one of our funders actually gifted us a sort of uh, a survey in the UK. I mean, obviously it's not a worldwide one, but it's an example of a wealthy country. And what they found via a public survey was that, um, so I think it's something like 53% of people, the very first time they hear about ecocide law, instantly support it and it was more once they'd heard more about it and of course when they told us this we kind of went what do you mean only 53 percent and they just looked at us like we were mad they were like you know, i mean these are like really professional political market researchers and stuff and they basically said look basically all our clients would give their right arm to have a majority result at first pass and that's what you've got so don't you know don't you know underestimate the power of that there is appetite for this so that was really encouraging, and we know that. But we also know that at the moment, if you stop someone on the street, eight or nine out of ten people won't know what you mean immediately. But like, they won't work it out, but you know, it won't be something that's familiar. So this is, of course, where you guys all come in, um, and any audience does. Um, so one of, the, one of the big obstacles is simply awareness, because it is such a kind of, it is such a common sense response to what's happening that a lot of people simply say, well, is this not a crime already? You know, so there's not, you know, there's not necessarily the awareness that it's something that doesn't, it, you know, isn't the case yet and could be the case. Not only could it be, but it's actually partway there. Um, so, you know, we still get the response of, oh, that sounds like a good idea. And we're like, no, 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 hold on. We are way beyond the good idea stage. Um, so, yes, I would say that, you know, those are probably the two biggest obstacles. And I think um, a few years ago, we probably... Actually, I remember predicting this a few years ago, saying that we'll come to a stage where no government will want to be seen saying they don't want to do it. And I think we're already there. They sidestep, or they say, oh, there might be other routes, or they say, oh, we don't know if we're ready, but they won't say, this is a bad idea. And that's a, yeah, that's a nice place to be. It's, 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 it's definitely at a stage of kind of... Particularly with this definition, you know, I mean, I've yet to come across somebody looking at it and saying, oh, that shouldn't be a crime. I mean, it's just, you know, it just wouldn't make sense. So, so yeah, I think that's kind of where we are. Thank you. And I suppose as well, considering this combination of law and activism that you and Polly had when you started the concept of ecocide and the huge rise in public interest with ecocide the moment this legal definition came out, I suppose, how do you see, what do you see as ecocide's unique role and appeal, and I suppose, speaking more broadly as well, the law's unique role and appeal when we consider increasing climate litigation, fossil fuel non-proliferation treaties, and ecocide as well? What do you think is that unique spark that it has? I think this is really fundamentally important, and I think that the... the 
the arena of law is only recent, has only recently started gaining traction in the kind of climate, sustainability, ecology, all of that space. Um, and you still find at most climate conferences there is not a category for law. You know, so it's, 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 it's still seen as, a, you know, it's, it's sort of emerging, if you like. It's, it's kind of coming out of the, uh, out of the, the, the shadows. Um, and, and should be, because ultimately one of the biggest problems that we have, I think, in, the, in this space is that is, is short-term politics. You know, the, 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 you know, politicians are always, you know, there's always full of fine words. And, you know, anyone who's been to, as, as Leia has and, and maybe others in this room, have been to any of the COP talks and, and so on. You know, there's... You know, there are plenty of talking shops out there. Um, and, you know, the number of... I've kind of lost count of the number of very well-meaning talks that I've heard where people have a five-point plan to save the world and they want to create a movement around it. And I sit there and go, oh, good luck with that. You know, <laughs> um, and it's not that they're not brilliant ideas, but, you know, it's, it's, there's something about bringing the legal side of things in that actually creates the parameters that are needed. Because I think one of the things that is is really palpable is this kind of frustration with the slow pace of action to address the level of crisis that we're in. Um, and that is partly, I think, that it's just really daunting. And there's a lot of, you know, there are a lot of people that do, you know, that want to be, I mean, there's, you know, there's a huge, I mean, you know, from, from the grassroots to the UN corridors, you know, people are wanting something to happen. But there's this kind of frustration at how exactly do we do this quickly? How do we do it quickly? How do we do it, um, you know, concretely? Um, and there's something about law that brings that in. And obviously there are different areas, um, like, for example, um, you've, have you heard of Client Earth? Um, so that's a, a charity, effectively. But they work specifically, they have, you know, hundreds of lawyers working with them. And what they do is focus specifically on how do we use existing law to you know, hold governments to account, hold corporations to account um, with what exists. And, and they're having an, a, you know, amazing successes a, a around the world doing that, um, which is incredible. And then you have people like the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty and ourselves who are looking at bringing in law that isn't yet currently uh, in place. But I think what's particularly powerful about the ecocide law initiative is that it's effectively around, firstly it's criminal law and obviously I outlined earlier some of the advantages of that um, but also there's something about um, the visibility of a criminal law approaching that creates immediate effect so although politicians and lawyers will often focus on how will it be prosecuted who will be in the dock you know what how will you know how will investigations work you know what kind of sentencing will there be all of that of course is important but actually what's possibly more important is that those in the sectors who will be affected by this need to see it coming and they need to see it coming at least a couple of years in advance and the reason is that ultimately what this law is about, as any criminal law is about, is protection, prevention, deterrence. And if you want people to change behaviour, which is what we all want, then you need to see something coming that's going to make you do that in advance. In other words, it's going to have you 
perceive the gap between now and that time as a compliance period. And that is super powerful. And then, to, you know, to come back again to the time scale thing, I mean, obviously, we don't want to wait too long before this is in place, but we do want to wait a little bit because we want those people to actually have that space to make those decisions. Because when it comes down to it, Governments are going to put this in place. If governments are going to put this in place, above all, they need to feel safe. Politicians do not like being the first at a party. They want to be embarrassed. The conversation has to be there. People have to have joined it. It has to feel inevitable. All of that creates safety, just like criminal law itself creates safety. And that's really, really important because in, in order for that to, you know, in order for those companies to see it coming, in order for governments to be behind that, they have to not feel that they're getting a finger pointed at them right now. Now, that's really interesting because the whole activist sphere does exactly that and needs to do that. It's really important that it does that. And actually, you know, without Extinction Rebellion, without the school strikes, this conversation wouldn't even be happening. It's absolutely crucial that that um, activist, that that on-the-ground type activism happens. But what follows that is legal change. And for the legal change to happen, people have to be in the room and they have to feel safe. So that's, again, that's why that, that sort of time lapse, if you like, is important. But we do believe that it's not only possible, but, but probable, possibly even inevitable, that this will be in place within the next few years. And frankly, it has to be in place by 2030, we think. Um, but, but yeah. Thank you. And we might now open it up to the floor for questions, um, if there's any questions from anyone in the room. Um, I'll start here. You to... <laughs> Thank you so much for your amazing talk. Um, one of my questions involves you putting through the, the, the timescale frame where you said uh, by 2030, ideally, you want to have this implemented so we have that the period where people can obviously be aware and prepare for the implementation. What needs to be done between now and, and, that, and 2030 in order for, for the law to be in place? Okay, so that's, yeah, that's very much sort of getting down to the sort of nitty-gritty of procedure. So um, obviously it depends at what level you're putting the law in place. So we ultimately aim for the ICC, the International Criminal Court, and there's a particular procedure for that. You know, a state or a group of states needs to propose an amendment to the Rome Statute, which is the governing document. Um, that then needs to be, that text needs to be negotiated and then adopted by at least two-thirds of the member states. And currently there are 123 member states um, so that would be 82 countries. That membership varies slightly over time as more countries join and so on. Um, it's, it sounds like a lot of countries, but the way the ICC works is similar to the UN. It's one state, one vote. But unlike the UN, there's no security council and there's no veto. So, you know, none, so that, you know, effectively, one big economy can't just step in and go, no, this isn't going to happen. Um, and the beauty of that is that a lot of the smaller countries, for example, the small island states that are members of um, some of the developing countries, for example, have more interest in this than some of the bigger economies. And actually, you know, if all the member states that are... You know, for example, small island states, not all of them are members, but quite a few of them are, you could end up with you know, a third towards a half of the number of people you needed straight away. So um, there's, you know, there's, there's a, it, it's actually very doable. You know, it's very achievable as, as a route. Um, uh, so that's, that's one aspect. If it, we, obviously, if you're doing it at the regional level, actually, we're at a stage where that's being discussed right now, for example, at the EU level. Um, and that involved you know, getting 
like several committees, parliamentary committees, to back it and then the parliament to vote on it and then that to go through to the level of trilogues, which is parliament, commission, council. Um, of course, at national level, it can happen con potentially considerably faster. I mean, actually, in Belgium, which is the most far advanced um, country in this, uh, to, at least based around this, this definition, and, and all the, most of the developments that are happening right now are, have been based around this definition that was proposed by this panel that we convened. That's actually very important because the more coherence there is, the more likely it is that an international crime will end up in that particular area in terms of a similar kind of definition. So that's really useful. Um, but yeah, a national um, parliament could, could do it relatively quickly. Belgium's taking a little bit more time over it because they're actually in busy revising their entire penal code, <laughs> which is the first time it's been done in 150 years. So it's given them the excuse to bring something like this in, but it means that there's been quite a lot of, you know, it's taken a while to, to get to the stage it's at, which is that it's done its second reading, it's been government approved, it just requires parliamentary approval, which will happen in the next few months. So it depends kind of where you're approaching. And in terms of the how, how do we get there? Um, <clears throat> I have to say, this is largely down to a conversation. And this is what we've just sort of discovered. And the conversation, I mean, you know, we, we're obviously not wholly responsible for how fast all of this has gone, but we're sort of at the heart of it and we've been driving it. And what we've realized is that countries don't, I mean, people will say to us, for example, how many countries have signed up to this? That's not how it works. Treaties don't work like that. You know, often when, you've got, when you get a treaty that has been put together over time, and, you know, almost literally until the day people can sign it, they won't say whether they're going to sign it or not. You know, that's, that's, it's, you know some countries will, but a lot of the, particularly the bigger players, won't. So the way that we sort of judge how fast this is moving is by who's talking about it, how actively they're engaging in it, are they turning up to, for example, the diplomatic briefings that we hold behind closed doors during things like the UN General Assembly high-level week that happened in New York a couple of weeks ago. You know, so we, we, and what we do is we log and we publicise whenever something comes up on the public record. So if you go on our website, you'll see there's a leading states page you know, where we kind of put all the key... You know, where has a parliamentary petition come up? Where has someone done a white paper? Where has someone proposed a law? You know, anything that's kind of in the public record because what that then enables us to do is go to those closed-door groups of states and say, oh, look who's talking about it. These people, these people, these people, these people. And, of course, all of that is about building you know, momentum around it. And that brings me to a point that I think is very important, which is that I think um, we're all really aware of how lobbying is hugely powerful. So, you know, we all know that the oil companies, um, you know, engage people to specifically go talk to people, you know, in order to push legislation and influence it. But on, dare I say it, the side of the angels, that's not valued nearly as much. So, for example, we always, you know, we've always had problems getting, you know, I know stability funding, for example. I mean, we, we're constantly bootstrapping ourselves from one la layer to the you know, level to the next. I mean, back when it was just me and Polly, you know, we and a few volunteers, we maybe had, you know, two or three months in hand, and we didn't take a salary. And for years, we didn't even take a salary. Now, thankfully, we are able to do that. But effectively, we still are operating a few months from the wall all the time because it's, you know, it's not something that in the philanthropic world is hugely valued, which is really interesting because actually when you look at the impact of 
effectively lobbying, you know, doing that kind of advocacy work, you know, in the UN conferences, in the right political scenarios, cross-feeding across civil society, which is, which is one of the key things that we do, and make sure that we, we um, you know, talk to all different kinds of sectors and groups and networks and all of that sort of thing. You know, we've effectively brought this conversation from a non-existent one five years ago to one where the EU is about to legislate in some form, and we don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but that's incredibly fast for, you know, shifting international law. So I think that's, it's really worth kind of clocking that and realising that actually the power of talking about something in the right way and in the right places is really important. Um, and also to the extent that, um, you know, I was saying about, you know, not, not kind of feeling that, you know, people are pointing the finger, you know, what we will do, for example, is we won't say, oh, that over there is an ecocide, we will say, hmm, interesting, that journalist is talking about that as an ecocide. Look how fast this conversation's growing. So, you know, so you can sort of see the difference. There's a, there's a kind of step back. And what that allows us to do is establish a level of trust with the political and diplomatic players because we're not pushing in particular directions. And interestingly, neither is that definition. If you look at that definition, it doesn't list a series of acts or things that you shouldn't do. And actually, that's really important because as soon as you list a series of acts, which is actually how most environmental regulation works. It's very specific. As soon as you list a series of things that you shouldn't do, people will say, well, I wasn't doing that, I was doing this. Um, or, you know, what I'm doing isn't on that list and therefore it's permitted. Um, or, you know, if you're a government, mm, ooh, but our friends in this industry are doing that, so we might not want to engage in that conversation. So, you know, so effectively the fact that that definition focuses not on specific things, but on the level of harm means it's actually very hard to argue against. And it allows people to get on board. And that's really important. I mean, you were, <clears throat> you were saying about how, obviously, this could be used to prosecute like, companies, but could you see it being used to like, prosecute governments or heads of state eventually? <laughs> Absolutely, that's certainly possible. Um, we uh, criminal law on the whole focuses on individuals. I mean, can, there there is you know you can prosecute corporations for for environmental offences such as they exist. But the beauty of this, I think, is about focusing on on individuals because I think what happens with um, both at government policy making level but also at the the, the the top of industry is that there's a kind of a hiding behind the corporate veil um, and there's a sense that, you know, maybe the worst that's going to happen is there'll be some kind of fine. And, of course, that just gets then factored in to, um, to the business balance sheets. And at government level, it's kind of like, oh, well, you know, this has been a government decision or what have you. But actually, in reality, people make decisions. It is actually people. You know, even if that's a group of people around a you know, boardroom table, you know, it's still people. Um, and so having that kind of individual focus is very, very important because, you know, at the moment, you know, we have a scenario. I mean, I'll just pluck a scenario out of the air, like, you know, the sewage scandal in, in the UK with, with um, the water companies, for example. You know, those companies, you know, might have to pay fines, but, you know, those bosses are still going to have their, you know, their bonuses and they're still going to be able to walk into another, you know, just as cushy job if they want to. Um, and, you know, and of course that, that kind of connects with the political sphere as well because there's, you know, there can be a bit of a kind of revolving door between... Um, industry and politics um, and so of course when you actually have 
your, you know, your personal freedom and reputation at stake, there's a, a very different feeling about it. In terms of heads of state, the only real place you can prosecute those, them is actually at the International Criminal Court. Um, now, the, any, any country that ratifies a crime there can apply it in their own jurisdiction, and we fully envisage that actual cases would most likely be taken in national jurisdictions. But when you go that high... You know, when you go to the... Because, I mean, for example, Ukraine right now is looking at putting prosecutions for ecocide in... Because actually it's one of the few countries that already had some form of ecocide in its, in its um, penal code. But they, it can't be applied to leadership crimes. So that, that, that would have to happen at the international level. Yeah, thank you very much. Uh, two things. First of all, I would love to acknowledge all the effort that you have been doing in the past years because it is remarkable how much you, ca you have achieved with very little. And so congratulations sincerely. And the second thing is that I would love to support to advance your work. Um, just one year after you started with this organization, sorry, one year before you started with the organization, the Venezuelan government started a mining project in the, in the Amazon rainforest. And, and I was so impressed for all the, it was terrifying to see all the human rights and environmental violations they were doing there. So I started following the, the Stop Ecocide movement and I was like, oh my gosh, this is really so important. It has to be put in place like now. So after that, um, because I wanted to raise awareness of the situation in the Amazon and following all the organizations, uh, just Stop Oil and all of these groups that are starting um, raising, I, I created, I devised two things, device, sorry, two things. and. and Basically, the second point that I want to make is how perhaps as an individual I could support further to, to advance your movement, but also perhaps somehow to, to inspire everyone here in this room because we got an incredible potential here in Cambridge. I graduated two years ago in international business management. I come from Venezuela. I was pushed away because of the economic crisis. And basically... I made these dresses with real money, the money that got worse less because of the economy collapse. And so what I did is that I put them on me and I went out on a staging any event. Honestly, you can't even walk, away, walk, walk inside of a room. And I delivered the speech of what was happening in the Amazon rainforest. And basically I send the attention to organizations that are experts because frankly I am not. I am here impressed with all the amount of knowledge that you have and that you are sharing with us but I was like okay well I don't have much knowledge but this is what I can do so I prepare an artistic sort of act artistic activist show and I walk in the room and I say right this is what's happening there and, and we need to do something. First of all starting from learning what is happening and following that I devise these kind of like money art workshops. So basically I give the money to people. It's the real money that I brought from Venezuela because it's kind of like paper, paper money, it's worthless. And I give it to the students to make artwork, collage, things like that. Let's make a collage of, of the green lungs of the world, but 
let's make visible, let's see them as a healthy lungs because at the moment they are really like super weak. That's the reality. So I think this has worked very well, that much that I have been invited to participate in museums like the Fitzwilliam Museum and in Sweden in the Economy Museum. Frankly, I'm no one, guys. I <laughs> honestly, I am just trying to do my part, but so I want to help. I want to support and thank you so much for what you are doing. This is fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> what an amazing thing. Thank you so much. Thank you. And what a brilliant example of just absolutely using just your own ingenuity to think what is it that, you know, that I do and that I could come up with. Sometimes people ask me, how do I be an activist? And I always think that there's this kind of combination of like two things. So firstly, you find the thing that really outrages you because nobody becomes an activist of any kind without being outraged by something. Um, and secondly, what is the thing you love doing? especially if it's something you do without even much effort, and apply that to the thing that outrages you. Hey, presto. You get, you get solutions like this amazing woman. <laughs> so, yeah, no, really, really inspiring. And, um, and if there's even, you know, and there, may be, there are many, many ways that, that, you know, you could support what we do, and we have a, an act now menu as long as my arm on the website. <laughs> um, but apart from that, the, the really primary thing is talk about it. Use the word ecocide and talk about it. And, and, and in whatever networks you have, we all have networks. Um, so, yeah, really amazing. And thank you. Thank you so much. So I just wanted to say that the dress, the secondary that I'm wearing with the band notes, it has a table for birth. And I call it ecocide money dress because I was like so inspired by the concept of it. I was like, that's it. It's called ecocide money dress. That's amazing. Somehow to, to bring attention to your. Please, absolutely. Anywhere, any, anywhere that you've got, um, you know, some kind of like, if there's a, like a press piece about it or anything like that, you know, we love those kinds of opportunities to, to sort of say, look, you know, look who else is talking about Ecoside and look how they're doing it so that, you know, that kind of contributes to the momentum. Thank you. Um, you were talking earlier about it being a corporate law. Um, and I was wondering, and you're talking about the importance of people feeling scared for their freedoms. And the way I understand it at the moment is quite a lot of the time corporations are understood as sort of legal entities that have rights, but they can't be sort of like punished by removing freedom in the same way that we can do to individuals. And I was wondering how you sort of think about that and approach that when thinking about ecocide and what sort of solutions you have to corporations being like, oh, okay, we'll budget in the sort of fine into our balance books, but actually you can get rid of the board of directors, the shareholders are still going to get paid at the end of the day. How do you factor that in, basically? Well, I think the, the, there's, there's one aspect that I brought up briefly earlier that is very important in this, which is about reputation. Um, and particularly um, if, if whoever's in the driving seat of an organisation is um, potentially being investigated for something criminal, that has a massive effect on stock value. And of course, um, and so that's very important. Another aspect is that, and, and, and I can illustrate this by saying that one of our, um, one of the most amazing activists for ecocide, uh, ecocide law in the Francophone countries, she's called Valérie Cabanas, she's kind of retired from it now, but she spent many years talking about this in the French-speaking world. She gave a, a talk on the Champs-Élysées in Paris to hundreds of CEOs. 
And she had them, you know, people coming up to her in tears after the talk saying, thank God you're doing what you're doing because we are beholden to our shareholders. We might not want to approach things in the way that we, we do, but we, we have to go to the bottom line on what's cheapest and quickest and what have you because that's what our shareholders demand of us. If we have a law that allows us to say, no, we can't do it that way because it's actually potentially criminal, then that gives them a tool to actually go back to their shareholders and say, well, no, we're actually going to have to approach this in a different way. Um, so I think that's really important. I also, th I also would like to observe that in certain contexts, like, for example... Uh, in the EU, the likelihood is that they, they will, that it might, you know, it, depending on what text comes through, it may also there may also be um, implications for corporate bodies as well. Um, at the ICC, it focuses on individuals, and, and I personally feel that the individual focus is very, very powerful and important. But there, but at national or regional level, there are ways that corporates would also potentially. Um, get some kind of sentencing. And, and also, um, and this is something Polly was very keen on and, and, and has begun to be applied in different ways, but is that, that sentencing could also uh, include things like reparations and so on. But of course, as I say, the ideal scenario is that you don't have to be repairing because you're putting people off in the first place and they're having to think of different ways to do things. And at this point, I would like to just say that, you know, I mean, human beings are incredible things. I mean, we, you know, we are able to, uh, you know, we have the gift of imagination but that needs channeling if you just say to an artist make me an artwork that's one thing but if you say you know i don't know you say to a poet i'm commissioning a sonnet it's like whoa okay so i've got this particular form i have to use or you know to an artist i you know i want a portrait of this person that th of this size you know parameters are absolutely key for innovative thinking and for creativity and i used to be an entrepreneur myself so you know i kind of there is nothing that stimulates that creativity and that innovation better than having parameters that tell you what you can and can't do because that allows you to get really jiggy <laughs> with what you can do. Um, so I figure that's also a really important element. Thank you. Hi. Um, so this might expose a slightly dramatic understanding of the law, but <laughs> is it something you're trying to do to get like a flagship prosecution? So it would be, mm. some, yeah. Um, it, it, I wouldn't say that that's that it's something we're sort of trying to do as such, but we we assume that there will be such a case uh, because any first case, particularly at the international level, will be very high profile. Um, now, the interesting thing with that is it will almost certainly be something very straightforward because lawyers, and there are plenty who want to get their teeth into this, they will want the jurisprudence to evolve in a way that's usable and clear. So I would guess that a first case, for example, is unlikely to be a climate or emissions case because there are so many complications around attribution, around different kinds of things like that, um, you know, market share responsibility, all sorts of things that might have to come in with a climate-based case. My suspicion is that initial cases are likely to be very clear-cut, like a toxic waste dump of some kind, or, you know, um, illegal deforestation on a massive scale, you know, something that, you know, can be quite clearly pointed at as a decision or a project that, you know, was consciously taken that shouldn't have been, or something that was, you know, could have been avoided if the right protocols had been followed and it wasn't, you know, something like that. Um, because I think those kinds of cases will create the initial sort of base for, you know, for continued cases. But make no mistake, as soon as a CEO is in the dock for, for Ecocide, 
everybody else is going to sit up and take notice, you know, so if they haven't before. And what's interesting about this as well is that, you know, it, it's sometimes people say, oh, you know, this talk or that talk that you're giving is preaching to the choir. It's actually really important to preach to choirs because they go sing in lots of other places. And I, and I mean this in a quite a literal sense with this, in that there is actually a choirs project where a whole bunch of pieces have been devised for singers around ecocide law. And the, the guy who's come up with this project informed us that there are how many million? Maybe you remember how many million, but there's many, like tens of millions of choral singers in, you know, in, in Europe, you know, that can sing about ecocide. I mean, that's just one example of, you know, like, 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 <laughs> like the art money project, you know. Um, but yes, yeah, so th th you know, that can be very important. And the point I was originally wanting to make is that this law is not for the people that already know it's needed, really. You know, they're the people that will bring us to the point where it gets legislated. After that, it's about the people who don't care or who aren't thinking about it because they're the ones that are going to sit up and take notice when that first prosecution happens. Thank you. And I wanted also to voice my deep respect for what you and Polly have done. Thank you very much. Um, do, you, do you foresee a possibility in which um, uh, ecocide is criminalised um, by international law, uh, but nonetheless, as we see uh, with genocide, the law, the law, the law isn't upheld uh, due to, as you say, certain countries or members not willing to stick their necks out um, and intervene, let's say, due to economic ties or whatever, um, whatever, I don't know, like loyalties they may have politically. Do you, do you foresee that as something that may happen? And if so, what, uh, what sort of, um, um, what, 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 would, what, would you, like, what would you do in order to, to counteract that? Let's say, is, That's a brilliant question. Um, I think being from a realistic perspective, just because you criminalize something doesn't mean it's going to stop happening completely. I mean, you know, how long has murder been a crime? You know, but what would it be like if murder wasn't a crime? So, the, effectively, the, w what we're looking at here is, um, in a way, it's another aspect of this work. I mean, interestingly, um, I just discovered recently, now this could prove really, really useful, I, I just discovered that my cousin happens to run the biggest TikTok agency in the UK. So, as you can imagine, I've taken him out to lunch since finding that out. Um, <laughs> but um, he made me do a 10-point piece he said, can you summarize everything you're doing in 10 points? You know, the history of it, the why, the what you're aiming for. I was like, blimey, you know, this is really challenging. And it, what it made me realize is that there are two aspects to what we're doing. So actually, there's an acupunctural thing that's really precise, that's just criminalized the worst harms to nature. You know, add a crime to a list of crimes. It's that simple, which is brilliant because you avoid kind of political partisanship and all sorts of other nonsense because you're so one-trick pony, which is great. But what I realized is that there's another aspect, and the other aspect is about creating a taboo. It's about creating, um, effectively, a cultural shift around uh, how seriously we consider harm to nature to be. Um, and so, effectively, and this is something that Philippe Sands talks quite a lot about, this, this um, very renowned international lawyer that is very much a vocal um, advocate of this. He says, look, you know, he, he always says, I'm not starry-eyed. I know it's not going to completely prevent every ecocide, but it does change consciousness. Um, and so that is something that we, you know, we absolutely 
already can see starting to happen um, and is very, very important because actually, yes, of course, there are CEOs who potentially know that what they're doing is dangerous, etc., etc. But on the whole, they are the logical result of a cultural attitude that is centuries old, you know, the colonial, that is, you know... Um, exploitative, all of those things, which have taken a long time to develop and which have produced an incredibly wonderful lifestyle for a very small percentage of people. You know, but effectively, that cultural mindset has led us to the level of destruction that we're seeing. Um, and, and this is also ties in with a whole other discourse around, um, for example, the fact that the best guardians of biodiversity are indigenous cultures. And they're often very, in fact, they usually are very supportive and aligned with this because actually it reflects something that they already know really profoundly. If you damage Mother Earth, there are consequences. Hello. <laughs> you know, it's really, really basic. Um, but we don't have it yet acknowledged in our legal system. And so, you know, that feels like a very obvious, you know, reflection to make. So, yes, it's entirely possible that that could happen but that doesn't invalidate in any way you know, the way that, that we should move towards that. And the second thing is that, um, that you sort of touched on as well is you know, how effective, for example, is the ICC at prosecuting genocide? Frankly, the ICC is not very effective at prosecuting anything. Um, and in fact, one of our legal associates frequently says that the ICC never misses the opportunity to miss an opportunity. Um, but that said, it's very important that it exists because it means that there is somewhere where heads of state can be prosecuted. And it also, in the case of ecocide, has a slightly different kind of reach because if you're a war criminal or a genocidal maniac, the likelihood is that you're not going to get prosecuted in your own country for kind of obvious reasons. So effectively, that complementary court thing kicks in straight away. And effectively, you kind of have to be at the International Criminal Court if someone's going to take you to court. With ecocide, it's not like that. Because, because ecocide is largely a corporate crime, you know, effectively, it could be prosecuted in any ratifying state, which actually is brilliant for the ICC, because it actually brings it back into the position that it always was meant to be in, which was a complementary court. Um, and that's actually really, really important, I think, in terms of the practicality of it. I also happen to think that it's one of the reasons why the ICC itself is quite interested in ecocide. And we just had our legal analyst, Anna, who you know, um, who was in Bonn. She's, she's, she was just at the... Um, uh, there was a celebration at the Institute of Criminal Justice at, in Syracuse, in Sicily, um, around the 25th anniversary of the Rome Statute. Um, and what she discovered is that they're really talking about ecocide at the ICC. Um, and we know, we kind of knew this already, but, you know, every, time, every year when we run side events there, we break records for attendance. Um, you know, there, there's, a, there's a really, really live conversation there. And I believe that one of the reasons for that is that this potential, the, the potential of this fifth crime could really bring that court back into international relevance in a way that is manageable for that court, um, but will also send a really, really clear message around the world. So I think that's, yeah, that's, that's really encouraging. And actually, that feels like quite a good note to end on.